This week, we're hosting a new process party and you're invited. We're breaking down how to build revenue into your business model by working with trade vendors. This is the professional upgrade you need because none of us are retiring off of design fees alone. We've got tips to help you find vendors, set up accounts, and help clients see the value in the process. Let's go. Hi, I'm Rebecca of Studio Plum. And I'm Sean of Renstead Interiors. We're interior designers. Turned internet friends. Turned real life friends. Welcome to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast. We're not that hot. Or that young. Every week, we'll be spilling the tea on how a new generation of interior designers can run their businesses. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Hey, Sean. What's up, Rebecca? Oh, just my mom guilt. But that's another... (laughs) that's, That's another day another discussion moms giving guilt to their children or getting guilt oh, from their children no. well kind of both now my Cecily's at the age where I get I feel guilty and then she like rubs it in like she knows she can manipulate you yeah she'd be like it's so nice that you have time to spend with me right now like <laughs> Fine, kid. Just here's a big knife to cut my heart out with. <sighs> yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> Does she say that stuff to Terry? No. Well, like they're out on a little like father daughter date right now. It's just always I don't know. It's like a this natural thing that like time with dad is just bonus. I mean, he's but very involved. But you're but yeah. expected to be the main time giver. Totally. Well, um, I can't. I can't exactly relate to that because my dogs yeah. don't care. Sean and Sean <laughs> is pretty. Sean's pretty good about giving me space, but then also he will say stuff like, "Oh, I'm glad we had today." And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, like, is someone yeah. dying? Like, we never know if each day is going to be. I the know. Last. I mean, how it's an upside that she even still wants to spend time with you and enjoy that because right around eleven, that's going to change. <laughs> oh my god! So I know. You're only five years away from the point where she wants you to get as far away as possible. Like literally yesterday she went to school or in the morning. So she got dressed in like one of her punky rooster, like weird outfits with like a purple um, cheetah print sweater on over tie dye pants. And then she had some sort of like over shirt, like almost like a vest. I don't even know what it was. Probably a dress, which whatever. It was cute. And then Terry was taking her to school that yesterday because he was off. So she comes in to like say goodbye wearing my fluorescent yellow beanie that she stole from me. So A, she's already starting to steal my shit. She was going to dash out the door and took off whatever this like vest thing was and revealed like six inches of her abdomen that she was going to trot off to kindergarten looking like, like 
a crop top. Miley Cyrus, 2005. <laughs> I'm like, um, excuse me. Excuse, excuse me, me, ma'am. Um, no. <laughs> That's cute. Nice try. Yeah, like, no. I even asked her about it later. I'm like, so what was, why were you trying to, like, sneak out wearing, like, that outfit? I just thought it looked cool, mom. Gosh, she's six, everybody, just by the way. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. She is going to test all the patients you don't have. And, like, be creative doing it. So it's really hard to, like get mad when I like kind of respect some of the choices in a way (laughs) (laughs) you're like respect dog you did it like (laughs) this is you're smart enough and you figured out how to play the game like like that or like that's a really cool outfit actually if you are 22 it's a rebel rebel mess yeah (laughs) what's going on on the fizzle sizzle front let's get into it all you can start um fizzle what it's why does it have to be so complicated to get a freaking flu shot um i had my flu shot this week it's just why are so many industries so far behind this like appointment setting make things quick and easy and it's like if you want people to go get flu shots and you want them to do these things, you have to make it as easy as possible. Well, because it's not an industry that we really need streamlined. We don't need millions of people getting vaccinated anytime soon. So why would they even spend (laughs) any time trying to solve that issue? Like, why? I mean, I can't imagine why Why we should make it it easy. Like, why, why start now? now? Yeah. It's been fine. Um, oh my God. I, it was just extremely difficult to go and request it. And I know that for a lot of like retirees or other healthcare systems, you can just like walk into a CVS or other places like that. Well, my, my healthcare doesn't work that way because Sean works for a healthcare company and I have to go to my healthcare provider with them in order to get that. Okay, fine, whatever. But I should just be able to literally walk in the door. Like I know it's COVID times, but okay, fine. I can't. Can you please make it easy for me to call you and say, this is what I want. And I want to come in quickly and don't throw up all these. Well, it's only this or this and between this and this, and you, we need this or this, and you have to do it this far in advance. And it's just like, okay, please. And don't you always think of stuff like that when like you're having such a hard time and you're actually making effort. And then you think of, what if I was somebody who had zero flexibility in their job, yeah. was not technically savvy, didn't understand how to do the paperwork. Like, right. it's so hard and like we probably have more tools than a lot of people like oh yeah they have an app and but the stupid thing is in the app you can you can like make appointments and do all that but not not for that and i'm just like really you can't add an inoculation thing i was i mean the whole experience was silly it was just then you go in and you're in there for like a second because it's literally just like boop and you're done and it was just silly 
was um i recommend if you haven't listening to it's going to be probably old by the time this airs but um the new york times podcast the daily had an episode about how we're going to get our how the vaccines are going to be distributed for covid it's only like a half an hour and it's really interesting because she's done a ton of research and kind of like talks through what that might look like and like they're gonna have to try to do a national database to track everybody so because since it's a two-part vaccine you're gonna need to have the same one yep and have some sort of reminder system to get people to come back i mean the potential undertaking fragility of the vaccines that are out there like they have to be in you know kept in a certain environment yeah the the deep freeze ones are are really going to be a challenge for a lot of places because not every medical group is going to be able to afford those freezer systems and they're pretty yeah they're pretty volatile so i mean yeah you would just just like like, you can't even just go get one like the issues that you're having for something that's been out in the world for decades and now they're trying to do this new system that is going to somehow coordinate every rinky jink nope doctor's office and national cvs like and they need to be giving out barcodes or something to people when they got it as like evidence that they got it because you know that system's not going to be thorough and And it's going to be required for some people at some point like for their jobs or for their school or so you're going to need to show proof that you had it and we can't depend on medical records completely because stuff gets lost in the transition or it can take a while to request one as evidence they had the first part to give them the second part it's a whole mess so yeah it's exciting um everyone's going to have to it's going to be like half honor system based <laughs> and the rest is going to be a crapshoot so i did get mine i'm like right at the the end phase and i feel like people don't know that that they run most healthcare companies run out of available flu shots every year there's only so many made so i mean psa out there to our audience that you need to you need to get one i'm not a healthcare professional but i would recommend talking to yours and getting used to this idea to vaccination (gasps) debates either but Yeah. yeah and then on the on the sizzle side, if everybody wants a walk down memory lane that might make you cry in a good way, the Selena miniseries debuted on Netflix, and I was crying in the first minute. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know if anybody feels... I think it depends on if you were living through it as it happened yeah like through her her music being on the radio her fame spoiler alert something bad happens to her (laughs) and then then, yeah like i i don't know if everybody knows selena's story so i'm glad that other generations will get to see it um what year did she die Spoiler alert. 90. Hmm. See, I feel I like, I mean, I definitely lived through it, but I feel like it wasn't. 90, 95, 95. 
95. See, anything that happened between 1993 and 1998 are literally a black hole because I went to Chico State. (laughs) It's lost in a in a beer bong somewhere. I mean, I just wasn't falling. (laughs) I mean, so I feel like I I grew up where my best friend was Mexican American. And I would go to her house after school and we would walk there and we would listen to Selena. And it was just like, I would be around her mom and her brother and we were listening to Tejano music at her house. And I was just this like weird white boy who was best friends and we would just hang out. And that was my introduction to it. And I don't, I know that everyone has a different experience with it. So far, we're three episodes into the series it's a fascinating fashion the documentary or a reenactment is a uh, well like i'm not gonna say reenactment it's it's a series and they're taking some liberties because they're focusing on like the family so far as they're young and you're seeing some moments of like 80s fashion mm. late 70s living Paid so you're getting pants? some of that yeah you're seeing some of that <laughs> you're seeing um a lot of teased hair you're oh, seeing yeah. a lot of uh glitter and sequins on clothes and honestly i have to give the costume uh department some big ups because they're doing it. They have all of it. So, so it's, uh, so it's like, good. like the crown. It's like a fictionalized. Yes. Yeah. And okay. I don't know how long. Again, I haven't read. I haven't looked that far into it because I didn't want to spoil anything. I don't know it how far this first um, mm. series of episodes is taking us into the chronology of it, but. Yeah. I've liked revisiting it so far. It's been really cool. Um, It won't make you, you won't be crying the whole time, but the first couple minutes, they know how to hit you. Like the producers Mm. and everybody knew what they needed to do to get you fully Mm. invested. And then you start seeing some other things. So it has a a good cast in it. Um, So, and also, yeah, Primer, go watch the JLo version. If you want to really kick off things right. You want to really get your Selena on. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think, yeah, you could totally, you could totally get, you know, everything done. I mean, and then you could go back and then go back and listen to, uh, go back and listen to the, um, my favorite murder podcast. I think they have. I'm um, okay. Now I'm gonna get hit by somebody. I'm pretty sure they did an episode of of Selena. And if they didn't go anyway, and yeah, but I'm pretty sure they did an episode early on the My Favorite Murder podcast for Selena Quintanilla. All right, I'm gonna cue that up. <laughs> I bet Cecily would love those little crop tops. Oh, she'll love the costumes. Uh, so and like, then maybe you just skip the final 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Some sequins, bell bottom, 
with I mean, there's top. some cool, you know, like the slouchy boots that mm, were like oh, all yeah. the rage, like slouchy boots that, yeah. That, I mean, some of that stuff I see making its way back into things because it could look cute with a legging or like a really tight fit jean or something. Other things like ruffled collars on like a jersey knit sweater, not coming back. That should not come back. I feel like I have that. What do you mean? It's... It's like a sweatshirt. It's like sweatpants material shirt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it has a ruffled collar, like a like a scoop neck collar with ruffles. Okay, that's a Target. Ooh. <laughs> that sounds cute. Ooh. I, I don't want a, it to come back. I love a dressy I feel, sweatshirt. I feel like it's in the vein of a lot of the clothes that Emily Henderson tries on in her Instagram yeah. stories. Like it's a very statement, much statement top. Yeah, like trying to recover days gone by. Like no, shop the women's cooler. section at Target, and that's what you'll see. The new Selena Quintanilla collection available <laughs> by at Universal Target. Threads. Okay. <laughs> what about your? What's going on on your end? Oh gosh. Okay, so fizzle. You know, I'm just going to say it. It's so basic, but the holidays are just kind of annoying me. I mean, they're kind of annoying every year. I know. Are we and just I've Scrooges been like, or humbugs? Like it's just too much. And I've been like thinking about it a lot this week because I just don't want to be exasperated or like not like Cecily is just beyond excited, of course. So, yeah. I started realizing that part of it is just like this whole gifting thing. And I don't go over the top anyway, or don't even feel like I should, but I realized it's like my rebel spirit being triggered that I don't like this expectation that I should buy shit for people that I love right now. Every why, single year, like, because I don't like external expectations. So every single year, this is what happens. Black Friday comes around, Cyber Monday comes around, and I'm like, I'm not ready to think about that. And then every single time I end up buying the stupid stuff that I could have just bought, but being told to buy it on those days really annoys me. Um... But you do, can I, do you want to buy gifts for people or do you even not want to do that? Yeah. Like I think about it through the year. I'm like, oh, that'd be a nice Christmas gift for so-and-so or, oh, and then I just don't do it. And then I realize like I get triggered during the holidays because the Everybody expectation is, and it's like, there's a deadline. Like we got to. Have a wonderful morning on the 25th. Uh, I don't I feel like, like being told what to do. I our I don't know what's our in our family. I mean, when we were kids, we definitely had a lot of gifts, but mm -hmm. they're like my nephew's the only one now, and he gets gifts and we'll buy stuff for him, but we don't spend a lot. Like we buy him one thing and then we contribute to an account for him as like our main gift, which is more like we do that throughout the year. But 
like with the adults in my family or even really close friends, we just, I think we've all come to this agreement, like a social contract where it's like, please don't do this to us. Like, please don't yeah. make us feel bad for not getting you something. And like, if Same. we don't- I don't have like a huge shopping list and Cecily's easy to please. I just get her don't. something with an with a unicorn or an alicorn or a mermaid or a, or a midriff. <laughs> we don't. I don't really. Be, I don't really get into the whole, which is so weird. But I feel like it's this capitalist-driven thing of like, go buy a bunch of stuff for a bunch of people that bunch of mm -hmm. junk you don't care about. And I really would rather give something that I really wanted to give to someone and and maybe it's not on Christmas but maybe I don't know yeah but then I'm not I, I don't know and you it's feel like you're not participating too... in the holiday like right and then it's like I want to enjoy the like relaxing fa la la of it all but I don't want to be rushed around and feel like I'm I don't know but exasperated aren't you kind of glad that you don't you have like a really big reason to not set foot in a mall this year though. Oh, totally. Like I'm, I love it. I, I really hate the mall. I hate it. I don't like the mall. I don't We've like the atmosphere, really... the energy. I Since just don't team... like this like deadline being imposed on me. And I think it's partly because like my sizzle is like, I get very, um, end of year let's wrap it up i like, like that let's get this over with no i like <laughs> i like the goals i guess i like the deadline of the end of the year that we're gonna like close that chapter and i like yeah. to step things into it like um but it's all things that i like or want to do like reading like I have a, I set a book reading challenge for myself every year no one cares like there's no pressure I just like it and I haven't hardly read all year and now I'm reading like three books a week because I want to hit my 55 books okay and I want to have a lot of my work processes cleaned up so I don't want to go into the new year with like my bookkeeping the way it is and I'm starting a new software for it and now I want to redo my proposal and I, <laughs> I want to do all the things basically down the rabbit hole I go down the rabbit hole this is like my Virgo meets my seven and I want to like be organized and ready and a whole new person January 1 and you feel like you can't do all of that and pay attention to holidays. Yeah, and give your so full the energy. holidays are just distracting because I guess there's something about it that's like energizing to me. So the end of the year makes me energized to do the process and organization work. And I'm not feeling like I want to like spend that time socializing and paying attention to my family. <laughs> I mean, it's like they're not on the same program yeah okay so what i'm what i'm hearing is you don't want to be obligated to things 
For sure. And it gets really hard at the holidays because there's a lot of expectations put on us, whether it's to buy things or to be with people or to have special things and do that, which can also become a major distraction from your regular life or business that's going on. Like, you know what it is? I'm, still just, like, school. Di- I'm diagnosing myself right now. I think because I'm feeling rebellious about this holiday shit that I don't really want to do. Yeah. It's making me have more focus on the things that are productive. And then that feels more like a um, more important thing to do. Yeah. So I don't feel, it gives me more motivation. It's like ADD brain a little bit too, like that pressure that I'm ignoring gives me more focus. Yeah. So it's like, me being in my room and there's a party in the rest of the house. Like, I love that feeling. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm like the opposite of FOMO. Like, I love that I'm having like my own isolated moment what while everyone the... else loses their minds. Wait, so what's the fear of, what's the opposite of FOMO then? Like, Joy, Jomo. Joy, the joy of missing out. I'm such a weirdo. I used to like my parents like tell me I used to like my own birthday parties when I was like four years old. I would peace out and everybody would be like, Where's Becky? And I like checked myself and went to bed. And you're like, everybody have a great time. It was so nice to see you. There's something so comforting. Like I love falling asleep on the couch when other people are up watching movies. Like there's something so comforting to me. I love working in coffee shops where other people are. So you want, you? I mean, you're okay with that stuff going on, but you just don't like want the white all the noise. expectation. You don't want it all falling on you. And as sort of the central figure in your household, a lot of it does fall to you. It really does. Like maybe if, like, if you just told Terry, um, I'm sorry, Christmas is on you this year. Just, can you handle that? And there's no advent calendar. And it's just like, he'll do a fine job, but the little things are like, I feel like what makes him special. And it's just those little, I don't know. We we miss the first Sunday of Advent. We have like my little advent calendar, uh, my advent um, candle set, you know, and Mm -hmm. it, like totally missed burning it on the first Sunday of Advent. Like that's this year. Oops. Yeah, like we'll we'll do two. Ne- we'll do two this Sunday. And I would not missed- care if it was just me. But Cecily's like, Mom, there's still no chocolate in the Advent calendar. Oh, God. Okay, good. Okay. Okay. Anyway, some all right. I got problems. Here's a so. dry Skittle that Desmond left behind. <laughs> Here's some raisins. <laughs> Okay, that's that's a that's a lot of fizzle that was a to deep dive. Yeah. unpack. But the upside is I've got problems. Oh, the upside is sorry, that was a sizzle actually. So my sizzle is that I'm working towards starting a fresh set of books in 2021. I'm going to start using Studio Designer, which this kind of could dovetail into the episode quite nicely for all of my vendor management, my um, furniture invoicing and proposals, tracking, and most importantly, all of my books are going to be inside of it. So no more QuickBooks. 
and me and our friend Claire hired the same bookkeeper for our separate businesses. And we've also been hiring her to train us because she uses the software. So it's been so exciting. I stayed up till midnight working on it last night on a Friday. And I feel really, really good about it. So I'm, that's the kind of stuff. That's where my head's at. They're not like jingle bells through the snow. I mean, uh, okay. I'm with you. I, I mean, I know it's exciting and I see why you would be excited to like get into that stuff and see it start coming together. And I think part of that is the optimism of starting a new year is like totally. you want to get to the cool things that are in store. And this year, probably above any other year, makes it feel like it's an obligation to like, can we just get through the holidays? So but I kind of want to do both. Like, I wish I could clone myself that I could. One of you has to suffer through the holidays and one of you gets to well, get excited about the new year. <laughs> one could be excited, enjoy the holidays and be like mommy making cookies and then one of us could be like getting shit dialed and ready. I mean, but I think that's everybody. I know. Too. Like that's a lot Especially of people who are solopreneur life. Right. Is you're you're constantly having to make that sacrifice of like, am I gonna spend the time and energy to find a really awesome Christmas gift or am I gonna phone it in on Christmas Eve trying to get something for someone pulled together? Um I would say find a way to let yourself off the hook a little bit <laughs> somewhere I know. with something like it's so hard, but I don't know. There's got to be a way you can, I don't know, drop something. <laughs> Probably not. I don't know what I it is. I would spend but... my sleep and water. Yeah, that's probably, I'm, I'm again, I'm not a, I'm not a healthcare professional, but I'm going to say that that's probably not a good idea. I agree. You Could, uh, are right. Re refer you back to one of our early episodes, Dare to Self-Care, and give you some homework. Pammy Hackbarth, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. I'm going to do better. Yes. I just drank a sip of water. Oh, perfect. <laughs> on, on that track. note, should we head into the party? It's time for another party and you're all invited. Okay, let's, we've been wanting to do this for a long time, and this is a big topic, so we're going to kind of, we have a few talking points about trade vendors. Yeah, this is when we get questions directly from listeners. Um, thank you for those of you who are writing in. We really appreciate hearing from you and what you're dealing with, and it's Probably such a big topic that we have some offshoots of this planned for other episodes because it's it can be hard to digest such a giant part of our business. It's not, you can't just put it in like 45 minutes and be done. And we're probably not the number one experts in the entire world. Absolutely not. <laughs> but a lot of, we know from a lot of you that you are starting or early in your businesses and you're looking for those things that really help elevate your professionalism in the industry. And I think trade vendors is where, for me, it's probably the biggest difference maker 
in running a business? Yeah, and I think that um, just to give us a little bit of a pat on the back, not really, but what makes us, I think, ideal to talk about this is we're not so far into our businesses and careers that we forgot that transition point. Like, I think we still remember the pain points of how we found our vendors and yeah. what we look for and all that. So yeah, we haven't had time to like glaze over all the fine details or the pain points and we're not and like nostalgic. We're still fig- I'm still figuring it out. Oh, me too. Like what works for me. So for the most part, we're going to be focused on purchasing vendors, right? Like not necessarily trades. Not like who they are. No, not like contractors. Correct. Yeah. This isn't like a wallpaper hanger or plumbers or things like that. Like con- not construction trade more like when we say to the trade, to the trade, to the trade, we mean to the design industry. So it's interior designers, interior decorators. Um, some architects would be considered to the trade. Even some contractors, like general contractors, purchase through to the trade, but usually it's for a lot of uh, hard material type of stuff, not soft finishes yeah. or We're decorating. talking about product. So whether it's furniture, accessories, some materials, um, how that all works. As opposed to retail. As opposed to retail, yeah. And I think that's what's hard is a lot of these retailers create programs that they call like trade program or designer program, but th- that's, they're not the same. Like, oh my God, there's one, I'm not, I'm, we're not trying to throw people under the bus, but there's one that's 5%. Toot, toot, here's the bus. Like, <laughs> 5% is not a discount. 20% like is not, not even, a discount. No. I mean, 5% is not even covering tax. That's bullshit. Yeah, my my general thought is don't even they, bother. Like don't even if they bother. can put it on sale, and it eats my discount, then it's not worth it to me. No, and it's like don't even have that as an option on your website if you're not, like if your company is not in the position to do that for whatever reason. Yeah, most you, and here we're talking about like big boxers or the stores you see at the mall, West Elm, Crate and Barrel, Pottery Barn, the whole mm-hmm. Williams Sonoma conglomerate. Like th- those are retailers. They're not passing on really big discounts to designers. They never will. The amount of the discount will not justify the time and energy we spend. And there's nothing exclusive about them. Clients can just go buy it whenever they want. Right. And it's not to say that I've never purchased from any of those places, but it's like very rare and I really try not to because I don't know about you, but I am in the business of making money. Yeah, I want I want to make money off of product because a business model where I only make money off of design fees is not sustainable. Like that's kind of like break even money. I mean, you can make some decent amounts of cash off of it, but you're not really building in a lot of wealth generation for yourself. You're not going to be able to fund your whole retirement plan with billable hours. You're not going to be able to give yourself vacation time with, you know, with those billable hours selling, selling goods is where that money comes into play. 
Right. So I like to think of, I mean, this has taken me a while to get my head around to, like in the beginning, I didn't understand how it worked. So just know if you're new to this, like it takes a little time, do some education, probably read some books because there's just a lot of kind of, um, a lot of the freight and procurement stuff is kind of like tricky to understand when you haven't done it before. So this is just going to be a general overview. But I like to think of myself when I am purchasing things for clients that I am a store. So I am West Elm or Pottery Barn or really like I am my own little boutique that has no door that you can walk through. And I buy things wholesale and I put my little price tag on it and I sell it. Right. Just like how Target, West Elm, like all these places, every place we go to is buying everything at a much cheaper price, marking it up and selling it to the consumer. The buyers at Target do not go to Walmart to buy their toothpaste to put on the shelf. They have to get a much better deal yeah they buy wholesale through procter and gamble or whoever makes the toothpaste yeah and and the more they buy the generally the more they buy and the more access to consumers they give to procter and gamble the better price they're going to get for that and in general that's how furnishing and accessories work too if you do have a physical location you may have more foot traffic on items so a trade vendor also more overhead so you need better you need to move more merchandise that way mm-hmm. but yeah there's generally pricing for designers with location like retail locations or shops and those without um but it's that same mentality of right so that's just i mean obviously that's like a super simplified way of explaining it but i don't think a lot of designers think that way so you see this comment a lot in the groups too about I have a client and they want me to show them all my receipts for all the pur- furniture that I bought them. No. No, you don't go into, I'm just going to keep saying Target, and ask the manager to see how much they paid for the toothpaste. Like, it's the exact yeah. same thing. That tube of toothpaste cost them 30 cents. Like, and they charged they... you $7. Like, <laughs> oh my God, that's some nice toothpaste. <laughs> I kind of like it. It has to be pretty on the counter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's like, a, yeah you're a, you're in the right track like when we're it. buying that's that's ours so yeah we didn't buy 200 footstools from vietnam and yeah you get a better price because of that but you i think it is important to create that understanding upfront with your clients of i am a retailer like i have a tax id number I have a reseller's permit, so I'm authorized to act as a reseller. I'm the store. I am the captain yeah. now. <laughs> but- and that's why you get you buy things without tax and then the client pays it. But yes. now you're capturing the tax. You don't own that money, so you have to pay it. You give it to your back. whatever your state, whatever agency within your state collects sales tax. You that it does add a layer of complexity 
when I started reselling was when I knew that I could not do things without a bookkeeper anymore because I couldn't keep up with everything fast enough and impounding, you know, I, you know, collecting the tax, making sure that I separate it from, you know, my general funds. It adds a whole new level to things, but the, the income that's generated or the revenue that's generated from reselling items covers the additional expense and administration of it. Right. And once you have the understanding and process down, then it's easier. So I just like to just want everyone to think that way because we like to kind of bring the emotional side of this up sometimes. And I think I felt this in the beginning, like, wow, I could buy this chair for a hundred dollars and I'm going to charge it to my client for 300. That feels so weird. Like, I don't know. There's some, I don't know. Not everyone. But that's how, way, but, but that's how. We feel guilty like, or like we're doing something shady or something, but really we're just, this is commerce. <laughs> like it's how it works. And that's, I think the hard part is to explain to customers that same thing is already happening at every retailer they go to. So mm-hmm. when they walk into West Elm and they buy a, sofa or a chair or whatever the item is unless West Elm made that piece of furniture which a lot of times they don't but let's just say for the sake for the sake of argument whatever the sales price is the actual purchase price sometimes is as low as it's like 66 or 70 percent lower than Mm -hmm. the MSRP that we see on the sticker Right. And that's why stores like Macy's or wherever can afford to put things on clearance for $2 when, you know, it was a shirt that sold for 25 and they're still, most of the time, they're still going to make money off of that or at least break even. Yes. So I think like, that's just like, before you get started, just understand that I don't over explain this to my clients. Like I usually don't get pushback. A lot of it's written in my contract. Yeah. Um, but I can't you don't have explain to it justify if I need yourself to. to them. No. So if you already have this feeling of understanding that I am selling this for a reason and I'm making money off of it because I'm a business, not your girlfriend. Like, yeah, that's kind of just the mentality to start. And then it's building your repertoire of people you buy from. It's actually yeah. pretty easy. <laughs> like that part I thought was going to be a lot more complicated than it is. Like finding your vendors? And setting up accounts. Yeah. Oh yeah. Once you have your Paperwork. legitimized form formed business with your tax ID number and all of your like seller's permits and all of that stuff, once that's all done, g- getting the trade account set up is really not a big deal because you have everything they need at that point. Yeah, all you I've ever needed was my resale number, my business card and a website. Yeah. Like, yeah. I will say there are some accounts you cannot get as a one-off designer. Some yes. some are not set up to sell to small design firms. Correct. But that's and rare. But there say. are options which we can tackle in other future conversations too, but there are 
some places will only sell to designers who stock or you need such a Have huge a showroom. yeah or you need such a huge opening order yeah that it's going to take you a while like to get to a $25,000 opening order and there are designers and showrooms who will still offer you a better price than the retail pricing as another designer and yeah I buy a lot of my upholstery from like I buy a lot of row um sofas for clients and there is another design firm who has a showroom that they have a designer to designer program so right. I still get good pricing from them and I don't but I don't go direct to the manufacturer yeah and um, there, but there are options out there if you're finding a trade vendor who you can't qualify for an account with they can usually refer you to someone near you who has an account yeah so we just have to start kind of asking and really how would you say you found your favorite accounts from the beginning um one of the ways is whenever i'm on a site that is retailing so whether it's a store like burke decor or even wayfair um I pay attention to the manufacturer mm-hmm. of Parabold an item. Is... Yeah, like if you're on those sites, they usually give away, which if you're just like the general cust- consumer doing a really cursory overview of a web page, you're probably not picking up on it. But you can start finding the sources mentioned that are wholesale to the trade sources. And I don't know about you, but for me, I find there are certain things I'm constantly gravitating towards. And then I'm like, oh, there's that vendor again. Like they're just making stuff that I like. And that's then kind of where I want to head. Mm-hmm. Um, I also pay attention to who gets tagged on other designers' Instagram feeds, even if they don't say this sofa is from, or the tag might not be right over a piece of furniture that I like. But if they tagged a vendor, I will go through and look at that vendor's site later. Yeah. And find them. Yep. Those things I do in the very beginning. Um, my number one thing was having other designer friends. Yeah. So like you and I and Claire, we do this now where we share sources and um, I don't know, cute things that we find or whatever. But in the very beginning, I wouldn't even have known where to start or where to look. So I, had a friend who'd been in the business for a few years and she really kind of like helped me understand the vendors she used when she used them quality differences price differences and I kind of just had like this really rough document that I would because none of them made until I went to market I had no like internal catalog of go-tos like I didn't know like I need an edgy dining chair. Where do I go? Like over time you build that repertoire of go-tos, but in the very beginning I had no idea. So I just picked a brain of a designer who I admired and she was really generous and helpful. And I just started a document. So it was like, just kind of my, here I go for lighting. Here I go for rugs. Here I go for case goods. Yeah. So you can like really have like 
your own understanding. Yeah, I think it's, um, should, I feel like there need, we should probably give a quick example of what we mean when we're talking about the pricing strategy though, because I think it just doesn't really sink in until you imagine what's what's involved or or how how price difference like what the price differences can be um because that's where it starts to get really well illustrated i think for for me was particularly we'll talk about in future episodes attending markets but going to market and seeing the label where it says like the MSRP, like the re the retailer's recommended price for this sofa is, mm -hmm. you know, $4,000. And then you see stocking dealer price, meaning you have a store and then designer pricing like us, we don't have a store or retail location. And you still see that that sofa is like, you know, $1,200 or <laughs> whatever it is. Like it's right. half of, usually like I would at least say, half of the MSRP. Usually. It's like a good place to start. And depending on the vendor, sometimes it's a bigger, you know, it's better than others. But to think about buying a $5,000 sofa, you can buy it for $2,500 and then mark it up and sell it to your client. Like yeah. that's a lot of money. That's $2,500 if you sold it at retail in your pocket and you didn't have to, you, you have to do something, you have to sell it, you have to handle issues, you have to track the orders, place them correctly, you have to be the point of contact, like there is work involved. But yeah, think about and how long it would take the billable hours to earn that much money. Totally. And in addition to all of what you just said, like the per project earning of those of those dollars, it's also all this time that I'm talking about with finding a another designer to ask, researching websites, getting to know lines, making these mm -hmm. documents that you're learning about and going to market. Like all of that training and knowledge base is what our clients are coming to us for and they don't have it. So yeah, the more time you invest and spend, the less time it takes you to find that perfect chair um, and you just start recognizing pieces that are out in the wild and like, oh, that's like you sent a photo. I'm like, oh, that's pieces from Noir. Yeah. Like I because I'd already placed it in a project. So anyway. Right. And I think that's what makes our jobs faster, too, is that you yeah. develop this this sort of first string, second string type of mentality for vendors and trade, you know, people that you want to work with, companies you want to order furniture and accessories from, who specializes in art, who specializes in mirrors, who specializes in upholstery, having Who's those easy to work with, whose shit always comes damaged. Like, I mean, that just, yeah. I'm still building that understanding and information and it takes time and experience. Right. And that's, that's kind of part of the taking your punches, like, mm -hmm in a new design school training in so wild yeah i would say that's sort of the warning that i would give to any designer is you can everybody can develop their own strategy for working with the vendors but i don't share the name of the vendor and i don't even share 
the name of the furniture, like the piece, because sometimes the same piece name is used and resold through someone else. Um, oh yeah, because that's but, how I find out what Studio McGee, <laughs> where they get Yeah, Studio McGee out. is a huge reseller. I think and, they, yeah, they started changing the name, but they used to not. And, and some of this is gonna happen, but I guess what I share with clients is you're, I'm, you're not hiring me to just pass along my discount. Like Tips. that's not what yeah. I do. Like I'm, am I going to try to get you better pricing if I can? Sure. Am I going to try to help you get access to things you couldn't just get on your own? Yes. Like there are better things than a pottery barn sofa. There are, yeah. there are lots of better things and some of them are comparable in price, but that's not what they're selling there and you aren't going to find that well and to be honest from what i've learned in the groups this has changed the industry's changing a lot and now there is a lot of overlap so crate and barrel might sell the exact same row sofa that you could buy directly but it's still worth selling if you are Basically, you're the salesperson for that line. So instead of Crate and Barrel being the salesperson, you are, and you know about it, and you're recommending it. Right. So it gets trickier, and it's sometimes hard when our sources overlap. Like, and they will. Best Elm now sells for humans. Like, that's annoying. Yes. They used to just make all their own stuff. So, and they but buy it at a way better price, out. and... Because they the buy it by the shipload. Yeah. The client figures it out. Like our markup is very, it's nil. I aimed, yeah, I, markup is tough because I don't, I don't subscribe to a single set markup rate, but I mm-hmm. aim at 30 to 35%. And I know that that's give or take, depending on where you're at some businesses are very rigid it's x percent no matter what that's just what we do others will say you know what like for me it comes down to if i want a client to buy something that's like we set aside in the budget that five thousand dollars for a great you know a nice sectional or a piece of furniture or whatever it is if i really want it to fit and it's like the piece that i think is going to really sing in the design and I've got to give up two or 3%, 4%, 5%, whatever the number is off of my markup. Sometimes I'm willing to do that because I really want them to get that piece. So, yes, I do the same. I kind of do mine opposite. Well, I don't know. I guess let's just talk about our process. So when I'm sourcing for a client, I have my go-tos that we already talked about. And then I find a piece. Some websites are really nice and they actually, like, we talked about, oh wait. Yeah, we talked about this and just stop. Um, yeah, bad. They actually websites. will put what their MSRP or map prices on the item, which is amazingly helpful. Yes. But most don't. So if my, my cost that I can purchase, whatever, a chair for $300, and I know that chair is sold at other retailers like Burke Decor or whatever. I will go find out what their price is. So I'll Google or try to see if I can find what the 
um, MSRP prices. And then I discount it from that. So the client is getting a little bit less. I don't, I this is that. probably not the best way to do it, but if I can't make like at least 30% off of it, then I probably won't source it unless it's like the only thing that will work. And usually there are other things to pick from. Totally. It's, it's good when clients tell you like, oh, I fell in love with this specific thing. And you're like, well then, okay, that one specific thing, let's do that. And then you can source elsewhere and make up your money on something different. Yeah. So when you think about it that way, like if I know that the client, so I'm trying to find this chair and I go to West Elm, like I want the client to, I like, I know we've debated this before, but I like the idea of one of the values I provide is I have access to things, but I also have access to better pricing than they could go and get it off of Berk Decor. Yeah. I'm not splitting my discount. I don't give them a, I never like state what I'm going to discount anything at. I just give them a little bit of a better price and they could just go buy it themselves for. Right. Sometimes it's only like five to 10% off. If I have a really good um, price on it, then I might show more or I might like make it look more valuable. But that's why in my furniture proposals, I show what their discount is off of MSRP. Okay. So I So they show... can like see the value even if it doesn't impact what you're doing accounting wise or pricing wise. It's showing them here's the savings to you. Yeah. I never show them what my what I'm buying it at. It's just what it's discounted off of retail. Yeah. So that way too, I mean, I feel like it's a little bit of a psycho psychological thing. People want um, to feel like they're getting a deal. Even like people with money. And especially people with money because oh, no. they didn't get it by just throwing it out wherever. Yep. So that way I, so like the software that I use, I can always see what percentage I'm making off of it and make sure I'm making money, giving the client good value. And also it kind of like hopefully prevents in being shopped to where I know what they can get this on their own for. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not necessarily beating that price all the time, but I'm not making it ridiculously higher. Right. And the, the drawback of them, like if they do shop it, cause that comes up a lot and I get it. Some, some clients care and they're going to spend the time to like Google image search something. And it's like, yeah, that's annoying, but let's just, let's just accept that as that's going to happen. Like we, at some point it will. And yeah. okay, fine. Just have ready how you're going to handle it because I try to reinforce for my clients, it's like, yeah, you you could go and purchase that item right now at that price. Yeah, maybe there is a sale or whatever. I Then you're handling it. You're going to be responsible for anything that comes up, any damage, returning problems. Yeah. You order the wrong size. You order the left-facing sectional instead of the right-facing sectional. All of they that. They just dropped it on your driveway and they don't bring yeah, it yeah. in. All of that uh, and all the and garbage most of, that comes with it. 
Oh God. And some clients will say, oh, it's just one piece. I'll handle it. My contract does say that purchasing needs to be done through me, but also I go back to our a really early episode of Contracts for Creatives when we had Ashley Hightower on, the um, mm -hmm. contract attorney. And it was like, yeah, you can have something in your contract, but how far are you going to go to enforce it? Like, am I going to derail a whole project and create bad mojo? For a dumb over... pendant light, yeah. Yeah, like it's, sometimes it's just, we got to know when not to take this stuff personally and when to keep moving and hopefully the, the goal would be to show the value in what you do early and make sure they understand why you're important to have included. Yes. And one more thing that I, I usually tell clients this in the beginning is, I think this might actually be in one of my documents, is I do not spend your time scouring the internet for the world's best deal because yeah. by doing that, I just, you're paying you for my time to do that and you ate the savings so right yeah if it was going to save you know three hundred dollars off the price and you spent two hours finding that best price or negotiating the best price it's a wash well and yeah sales change and yeah i'm not by the time you gonna... present there's no more coupon code like right and now i'm <laughs> like stuck with the price difference so whatever um that's that's important to talk about that price change of that marking up allows you to be able to accommodate for things that you don't feel like you're nick you don't have to nickel and dime a client about something if money got built in somewhere and there were some extra maybe the pricing did change on another item having the markup gives you space to absorb some of that without yeah. starting to be petty with clients um, and it also gives you a buffer that if something, an item does go wrong and you have to eat the cost, maybe you ordered the wrong item and paying to have it restocked is more expensive. You, the buffer that you build in with a higher price margin in that is that hopefully you can absorb that cost without, you know, putting yourself broke. Yeah, because some of the overhead is the risk that we take. So right. a lot so you of end up with a cool side table because you ordered the wrong one and you take that mm -hmm. as a loss or you hold on to it to resell it or you sell it to yourself. I mean, that happens to a lot of designers. It's it is pretty common actually. So I would plan for that and plan for that in the markup. And there are designers out there who pass on their full discount and just charge hourly for everything. There are designers who charge MSRP for everything. Mm -hmm. I think everybody needs to find what works for them, but everybody's making money off of this one way or another. Unless you're buying retail. Yeah. I only use retail now for um, e-design. Accessories. Oh yeah, e-design yeah. or accessories I do too. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna spend forever for a one-off small project like an office e-design, I, I, there's, I'm not going to manage that for clients. It's too much. And most of that is because of the receiving installation delivery, that whole process. Maybe that's we talk what about we should... that for a minute. I think we could have a yeah. whole episode about this, but let me like when just you order... do a quick explanation. Yeah. Like when you order wholesale from trade vendors, Almost 
all of them will not deliver direct to a customer's home. Or if they do, there's up charges to the cost of those items. So it then starts to become cost prohibitive. Um, almost all of them will require you to deliver your items to a receiving warehouse where they collect everything. There's a loading dock if it's needed. There's a loading, uh, a loading dock, there's forklift. a crew they open everything, inspect it for damages, inventory it, document it, take pictures of it usually, um, rewrap everything up, protect it. Yeah, that whole inspection process is so key. Like, I will have smalls um, delivered directly to me sometimes, like little light fixtures or yeah, whatever. Last one of my last like, projects, I had hardware, like cabinet hardware delivered to me. Yeah, a lot of small open, stuff, vendors will drop ship it directly to your house. Or yeah, and I, oh, but like for on a small scale, like I opened this box and it was just for a built-in. So there were six pulls. pulls. I opened it, looked to make sure it was the right thing. I did not look at all six pulls and one of them was just some random one they put in. So um. Of course, I didn't realize that until the cabinet guy was installing and they were short a pole for a while. So that kind of stuff, it's annoying for us to do it. Like, And it could have been saved. I mean, yeah, it was small, but in that case, could have been saved by the receiving house. that was a dining house. chair? If that yeah. was like one of the dining chairs? and Like, oh, five dining chairs in blue and one black. Damn it. Like, And I had a photo shoot scheduled or whatever, like... And it was sitting there for or the client months. sees it. Yeah. And you wasted two months that, of it just sitting there. Or then it goes out of stock. Oh my God. Why did that happen? It does happen. That And that's totally. why we do it this that's way why. is send it to a receiver. It's all behind the scenes. You're in control of the optics to the client. And that's where you get that big reveal like moment of the receiver can collect it all. And a lot of receivers also install and they provide that white glove delivery service where they hold it, store everything until everything's ready for installation. And then they come with their moving guys and the truck and they unload and unwrap everything and they carry it in. And I say, move the rug to the left three inches. And then they do. And I yeah. say, can you move it back to the right one inch? And then they do like the whole thing. Yeah. And they do that and they open the rug pad for you under the rug and they put little bumpies on little fuzzy bumpers if you want them to. I mean, that's white glove delivery. Well, yeah, and going back to like the philosophy, um, this is a luxury service and an experience that we're trying to provide. And if clients just wanted one off random delivery showing up at their house for the next three months, they would have just ordered it themselves but to have yeah. this big like one day install where their house goes from like drab to fab in eight from hours la to ooh la la and <laughs> this is how it's done so yeah i and that's it sounds like an indulgence it kind of is and some clients will not get that they'll be like well i can be there for that and it's like no literally there's 40 things that are coming into this room 
if you were to be here to receive everyone as they came from the supplier, it's weeks of your life and clients cannot be responsible for that. I've never drop shipped directly to a client because things do arrive wrong or damaged or they go, oh, I don't know if this looks right. Oh, why did we buy this? And you're like, oh, Jesus. And that's um, the risk of that. And I had a really hard time with this concept selling it in the beginning. It took me some practice. And just recently I have um, created a document about freight and receiving that kind of does some of the legwork for me. Um, I think we should do a whole episode on this, but it's I agree. really helpful to explain. Like you have to do it in the beginning. Clients need to understand how this works. And it's just like the professional designer way. Yes. And there's lots of reasons for it. So yeah, let's do a whole. We'll come back to that, but that shouldn't stop anybody from setting up trade accounts and going through that process. Ask Um, your designers in your area who they use for receivers, because that is like the major key to it is you do need to have a receiver already before you start signing up. But um, you can search, I mean, you can Google search receiver warehouse and ask them for de- designer references. Like, I'm in a pretty small market. There's only two in Sacramento, I think. There's so many in greater Los Angeles, Orange County, and there's just, they're everywhere. But some of them will cross state lines if they're close to a major yeah, metro okay. area. Like they will, yeah, like they're, remember, their job is to make your life easier. So you might think that paying for them to do that is going to be really expensive. Um, and cer- certainly it could be if you want like eight guys to show up to do an install or something, but that's sort of the expectation of this type of job. That's what is already happening for. I, I just can't, I, we have to express that's to clients. You're, you're already paying for this in the price at Crate and Barrel. They're, they're already sending it to a warehouse, collecting it, helping you arrange delivery. Like that's all, it's already being done. Would you rather give your money to someone you don't know at a big corporation or would you rather support my small business? Okay, so receivers are a why, are a must. Don't be scared, just find one. You it, can figure it out. It's, yeah, you and you might, you might stab around, um, and like try one for one project and then realize, oh, the next project, I'm definitely going with somebody else if there's other options. Um, don't be Again, afraid the to biggest do that. thing is you have to figure out how you are selling it to the client because this isn't a cost that you carry. They you, pay for it. They pay for it. So I don't yeah. mark up my receiving or installation from them um, or freight. It is a yeah. cost I go, I just pass directly to the client. I'm actually starting to not even take the money and just let the client pay the installer receiver directly. That's what I was going to ask. Cause late, what my process was is I treated it as a reimbursable expense and I would just, the client, I would, I would pay the client would then pay it back. And usually it's coming out of their final invoice or something like that from their retainer. I like your way of making it very clear of this is something we're doing. It's yours. Like it's all at the warehouse and you're paying for it when the it's bill just comes. like the wallpaper like, installer like i spec the wallpaper i might even buy it but you're yeah. paying the installer directly so right. 
I'm trying to give you a quote. So you'll have like an estimate of what it might cost, but just know you're going to need a check ready for blah, de blah on this day directly yeah. paid to them. And a good receiver will be able to give you a quote when you spec a room and you pull together everything that's going to go to that project. A good receiver will generally be able to give you an idea of that between when you expect everything to arrive, which can change, but they can give you an estimate or a number. Um, do you use a set percentage to kind of give clients an idea of what to expect from that? I've been using, I kind of can know based on who the event, like who I'm sourcing from, but I have been estimating like 15 to 20% for freight and receiving of total purchased cost, purchase cost of furnishings. Okay. I've been sending, giving that as a ballpark estimate, but I think I'm going to change it to 17% and actually flat rate it going Oh, forward. interesting. So some projects will, you might lose a little, but then other projects you might make some in the big picture, it'll just work yeah. out. Yeah. The old way I would reconcile it and actually and that's under, part. underestimate it and then get paid back for yeah. extra freight or whatever. But I, 17% is more of an overestimation. And I'm um, exactly like, I might actually make money off of that a little bit. So you're saying that's your freight from the trade vendor to the receiver, and that includes the installation and delivery. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, I was, I would usually do like freight, shipping, receiving, delivery, and then the full like, and I just keep calling it white glove because I want to make sure that listeners understand it's not here's a box on your doorstep delivery no it's they come in unbox it all move it around clean it back up put it exactly where it needs to go according to the design plan take all the cardboard the wrapping the styrofoam all of it put it back on their truck and leave and i was at anywhere between 15 and 20 and i think it's good to land around i like your idea of landing around 17 because if it is closer to 20 it's 3% on one job, but on another job where it was 15, that difference yeah. of 2% comes and back to you. And with this new, the new way that I'm doing my books next year, I'm going to be able to track that and check. Like you could run, run the numbers and go, Ooh, yeah. actually we need to be closer to 15 or we need to be closer to 20 next time around. Yeah. But I've I done it enough good. that I've tested it. I'm like, yeah, 15 is usually pretty good. So um, but I don't order, I'm pretty cautious about where I order from. Like I try to stay on the West coast and those are all things to think about that. Yeah. Just impact. Yeah. We've us. got some future episodes there without address questions like that about where our vendors located. So we can talk about that in yeah, sort of better, like ways that market like, ways you can really streamline and make a lot more money, but limits creativity so yeah i think i think it's this is a good business models yeah a good starting point because it can be overwhelming and i think it is just about getting in there getting started finding some places you like and then i mean it's you can get really excited very quickly by realizing the money making opportunity 
Um, I think for me, the biggest takeaway of working with trade vendors was reinforcing the value add of working with me as a designer. Right, because this is how I do things. And if you want to work with me and you want to be a full service client, you need to do it this way. Otherwise, yeah. I can offer e-design, which is just not as great, not as thorough. And I don't do any of that legwork. Yeah, you're you're going to do everything and the result will never look as good. It will never be the same quality, the same finish, the same attention to detail, because I can't do that on that scale. No. So and you're trying to meet their budget. So that's cutting budget is means cutting our time. So yeah, that's the way I see it for e-design. I I really don't I don't do a lot of it because clients realize what it doesn't include. And then they're like, oh, well, that's not really what I want. What they want is what they see as full service design, but they think it's going to come at like a discount somehow. And I'm like, no, actually doing e-design or distance type of projects take more time, energy, and effort because I'm not there with you. I don't get to be in the space and catch things as quickly, you know, and I'm not really making much. So you're not getting my time investment because I can't overspend Right. On and such I a can't small number. Get as invested creatively either. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that I'm working on with my offerings. That's one of my process projects I'm working on this month. Um, I personally do like to offer a lower budget service, but I'm tightening that up so that it's, you know, it's clear what you do and don't get. Yeah. If you're going to get, if it's a lower price, it's fewer services offered. Yep. Because we don't, I would rather be chasing the next big project, the next right. big client, the next money-making furnishing deal. Like I'm not going to make it off of one nursery or one dining room. Right. So the short of it is work with trade vendors, start putting a list. If you have access to a design center near you or a trade showroom or a design district, start talking to you. I mean, the real of this is, and this may be hard depending on generational divides, you actually have to talk to oh, reps and showroom managers oh. <clears throat> and customer service other designers. Reps, other designers, which is a vulnerable position to be in but trust me, like you can do it. It's not hard. You're not the only one with the question. You've got to get used to doing that now because it's going to happen throughout your whole career. Every time there's a new vendor or supplier or someone you want to work with. And honestly, once I started doing that more and like creating this um, podcast and some of the things that have come from it, it's made this job so much more fun. Like when you're working by yourself, it's so less isolating. There's so much work for all of us. We're not in direct competition. I don't know. I mean, helping each other goes both ways. And I've gotten yeah. so much, so much like emotional support, business support, all of it from reaching out to other designers, even in my own market. So 
Yeah. If we could Most actually, most of us I, are really nice. <laughs> Not just all, don't catch but... me when I'm in a just stop mood. Um, but otherwise, I'm very generous with my time. And and I will say this: if we can plug this um, for our listeners, and I know we've talked about this, but we haven't really like put it in the podcast for everyone listening. We love hearing from you. We appreciate your comments, your direct messages and everything through Instagram or emailing us. Um, but something that does even more for us, if you are if you have taken even a little bit of advice that's helped you, um, what we would ask of you in return is to take a few minutes to write a review on your podcast platform of the podcast and to give us not just the rating, because it does let you give just a rating, but to write a review carries the most value for us. Um, and kind of the why behind it is it's basically the whole podcast algorithm of mm -hmm. showing our podcast to listeners who haven't seen us before. It helps our podcast show up on whatever podcast platform they're using. It shows up as suggested podcasts. It raises our rating, which increases our visibility. Um, so if you think of it as like how Instagram, the more comments and interactions you have, the more people will show up suggested. That's sort of how podcasts work. And we depend on that growing audience to reach designers. And we, as of now, have run our podcast as a charitable <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> yeah. And it it is not free and it is not cheap. We, for the podcast, still pay for... Um, hosting. It obviously takes a time investment from us away from our families and our businesses. And um, while we love being able to give back to the design community, in the future, we also see this as being a platform for us to be able to see and meet all of you, to be at events, and to bring on sponsors that we believe in to help us not run this as a uh, nonprofit. And we, we depend. I mean, we treat it like a business, but yeah, we're still working out. We, we run it like a business, part. but if it was being run as a business, it would be a nonprofit business. It would be and yeah. Yeah. And that's not a long-term model. And one of the ways that we could use your help and support is to follow us, like us comment share. send us dms share it with friends um share it repost. in any design groups you're in that's really helpful yes and then Those are definitely all ways you can support us yeah and the review is a big one writing a review and sharing that actually does a lot even though i know it can be weird to write something you don't have to write much but the rating and the review your favorite tip Ooh, one more thing if you want extra credit because you're the hottest of the youngest designers. The hottest and the youngest. You can go to our website and sign up for our little newsletter because we are really hoping to launch a survey and we want to be able to ask you some questions. And we are working on a platform that allows us to deliver to our listeners um, resources, reference guides, and things like that. Now, it involves a lot of behind the scenes and work for us to set up the systems to do that. Um, 
and at a certain scale, it doesn't quite make sense until you have a, a decent repertoire of listeners that have subscribed that we can share that with. Um, and we'd love for you to be there for that. So we're going to keep asking you to do this because we're hearing from all of you in other platforms. And if you really want to show us the love, it's giving us subscribing on your podcast platform. So mm -hmm. we guarantee we show up for you every week, um, rating us, writing a review. That's like- Sign up for our newsletter. That's like the super whammy of- <laughs> Follow us on Instagram. Follow, yeah, which some of you, I know some of you already are, but here's what we will say. Out of the thousands of you that we know are listening because our podcast uh, host tells us how many of you are listening, not all of you are following us on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, that's kind of fucked up. <laughs> oh, we don't need to. <laughs> we'll take whatever scraps you can give us for now. But if you've liked us and you've liked our platform and you've learned something from us, please yeah, these little things show us some totally love. Help. Because at the moment, Sean and I are just looking at each other and talking and we don't hear anyone else in the room. So... <laughs> It's hard. Yeah. Like sometimes it feels like, is this thing on? Send us episode ideas. Send Ooh, yeah. us questions. We we do get a few, but I would I would love it if every episode we could take some time out to answer a question, kind of like uh, letters from the editor of oh people wrote in about this and spend a couple minutes on it or generate a. Sometimes we hear a lot and we're like that's a whole episode. That's not just yeah, five minutes totally. answering a question. And we depend on that from all of you. So I know you're out there. We know you're listening. We we even see what at what minute mark people stop listening if we don't know who you are because it's anonymous. But we know yeah, you're no out worry. there. We don't know. Um, but we would love to hear more from all of our hot young designers. That was a good PSA. Yeah. All right. Well, I think put a bow on it stay hot designers thanks for joining this meeting of the hot young designers club podcast if you liked what you heard please subscribe and leave us a review on apple podcasts check out the show notes there for links to things we talked about today we are keeping the conversation going on instagram so don't forget to like comment and follow at hot young designers club you can find Rebecca on Instagram at Studio Plum. And you can find Sean at Renstead Interiors. That's W-R-E-N-S-T-E-D. What up with that? Ooh-wee. I've been frozen um, for a hundred years. What did I miss? <laughs> like, <laughs> or a person in a coma since 2019. <laughs> How are things going? <laughs>